0: Welcome to the Outsmart Your Instincts podcast from Ideas To Go, the podcast where we explore what's going on under the radar with non-conscious instincts that trip up innovation and point you to some effective ways around them. Look, we all want to do the right thing for our customers. We all want innovation to be the big, world-changing thing we hoped it could be. If you're not enjoying innovation, you're doing it wrong. I'm your host, Adam Hansen. And I'll be joined by folks who love innovation and know what's up. Come join us in our adventures as we, together, explore how to help you outsmart your instincts. It's easy to poke fun at stories about people seeing the image of a deity in a piece of toast or on a shroud. We don't have to exert ourselves much to see oddity in the actions of others, but we all find structure in random data. We're pattern-seeking, meaning-seeking critters. The Rorschach inkblot test uses random images to start people talking, and it's the why behind their responses more than the specifics of the what itself that matters. The test relies on our ability to tell plausible stories about previously meaningless stimuli. We confabulate construct rationale from chaos all the time because we'd rather have more of our environment make some kind of sense to us than not. Too much ambiguity is unsettling. We love being able to explain why something is how it is even if we're truly unsure. This doesn't make us liars. It makes us human. We all resort to confabulation daily. We can't avoid it. We regularly find post-hoc rationalizations for our behavior, which is mostly driven by our non-conscious. Further, these explanations seem totally reasonable to us, and we're unaware that, in fact, they aren't the reason that we made a particular decision. We simply don't have the time or the capability to build a perfect case for every action before we take it. The metaphor for confabulation is unreliable eyewitnesses under testimony. Even the supposedly objective perceptions of an eyewitness are hardly objective. Three different people can observe the same sequence of events at the same time and still report things differently and swear by their reports. They aren't lying. They actually believe what they think they've seen.
1: Okay, I'm ready. I'm
0: ready. All right. So, um, Hey folks, welcome to my interview with facilitator from ideas to go and uh, force of nature. Dina Pankos Dina. How are you today?
1: Well, I'm great, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. I am a uh, longtime listener of the podcast. You know, I've, <laughs> I've listened to all four episodes. <laughs>
0: so
1: I'm, I'm super duper excited to finally be making my podcast debut.
0: That's awesome. I suspect this will not be the only. Uh, I think we'll be seeing more of you. So, Dina, what, tell me about just a little bit about your background and then kind of specifically... What was about innovation that kind of, you know, flipped your switch?
1: So what I love about this question, I want to say right off the bat, is that you're asking me to do some confabulating.
0: Yes. Uh, <laughs> we, we, always, we try to, uh, every episode, we try to see how quickly we can go meta
1: yeah, jump, jump in with both feet. So I have a background in physical theater and performing, and um, then I, you know, through a very circuitous route, got into marketing and market research and subsequently process facilitation and innovation. And a lot of many, many years of my business background uh, is in media. So I worked for um, a media company and most specifically with radio television and and digital media
0: and while you were there is when you really when innovation really started coming on the radar right
1: yes i had a boss who got to know me and said you know i think you would really dig creative problem solving here go to this conference and he sent me off to sipsy the creative problem solving institute which for anyone who doesn't know i'm going to try and get out in front of liza's bit at the end which i love but the creative problem solving <laughs> institute is an annual conference it's five days um and it really is sort of the 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 best possible immersion into creative problem solving so that's where i learned the uh osborne parns creative problem solving model and was initially taught how to be a facilitator and sort of embarked on this whole innovation
0: journey excellent and now you've been with us uh five years
1: since January of 2014, I'm bad at math, but however Oh, no, long-
0: that's not five. Okay, so we're coming up four. on four. We're coming up on four. four.
1: years.
0: It seems, yeah, it's hard to remember. I know. It feels like I've always been here, doesn't it? it, feel, it yeah, like life at Ideas to Go pre-Dina it's <laughs> kind of like a hazy, uh, just, just kind of a fog, fog-like uh, figures coming out of, from a scary place or whatever. Uh, cool so Dina has been very involved throughout the process of pulling together you know what we're doing here with behavioral innovation and and trying to understand better about how these cognitive biases make innovation unnecessarily difficult so today the one we're going after is really um, it's great because uh, where it first came up in the in the research was among people with severe mental illness or um, people who had suffered brain damage had like uh, split brain issues, like no the, corp- the corpus callosum was severed or uh, the emotional centers of the brain were super damaged or whatever. And it started to get um, scientists to really see some some common things that were going on. And so this is confabulation. And so just a quick definition, it's the idea that Um, when asked, for example, why we might, why we did something, we will try to be helpful and we'll come up with a rational reconstruction of something that was probably a largely emotional event. And we do our best, uh, by kind of applying some general theory about what causes what. And it's not lying. We don't think we're lying. We're not, uh, you know, we're actually, we are, we're trying to be helpful. We're trying to answer the question that was asked of us. And so if it's or either, because we honestly just can't remember actually what was going on or what our real motivation might've been. And, or we just, even in the moment we didn't really understand what our motivation was because it was kind of, we are probably largely reacting. It was probably very much a system one Uh, kind of reflexive thing
2: I think I need to believe that it works
0: what works we just do our best to explain why we did something but that almost never is is the entire truth so is that is that what we're talking about here
1: that's what we're talking about. I think it's a great way to say it in layman's terms is, you know, it's, you're trying to rationalize a gut reaction. So you reacted to something, you made an emotional decision. And now you're going back and you're putting all kinds of reasons <laughs> to like, the underlying reasons to why you did that. And, and the, the fact is that you just did it because you had a, an instinctive emotional reaction. And this particular bias is super, super problematic for market researchers, because it's really hard to get to the bottom of why people instinctively and emotionally do things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, when, and and the way to to really lay that out for the researcher is to ask the researcher, uh, him or herself... Uh, to think of maybe some big decisions or some decisions that had to be made under pressure uh, and try to see if they can figure out what their honest motivations were for those. Mm -hmm. And and if they are honest, uh, ideally at least they come away with, uh, it might've been something like this, but I'm not totally sure.
1: There's something I have to ask
0: you. Okay. So there's some, in, in some of the research on this, uh, one researcher, Max uh, Colthart, had a great line where he said, what's what's behind confabulation is our drive for causal understanding. So we just, we like to believe that uh, we know how all the pieces are arranged. We know how, like every, we just understand how process works, how everything happens. Uh, for most of us, believing in an entirely random universe is kind of scary mm-hmm. and, so, and trying to assign some sort of meaning is important in order to have meaning you got to have these dots that connect you know as neatly and as kind of obviously as possible so that's uh that's what's going on here
1: i think that the metaphor and i, I don't know if metaphor is the right word but the The example of how your eyesight fills in the blanks um, when your blind spots kind of come into play, there are, you know, several different physical exercises you can do with dots on paper, using your thumbs to kind of get a sense of how your blind spot and your vision works. Um, And then when you learn that actually your brain is and I think the word, the, the best way that I've heard this described is your brain is sort of auto photoshopping <laughs> into your blind spot so that there aren't any gaps in your vision. That's exactly what your brain is doing when you're confabulating. Your brain is kind of filling in the blanks. Um, and that, that's what's going on. It's very similar to what, what happens with your, your blind spots and your vision. I think that's a great way to describe it.
0: And so with that, with that, analogy, I think what's, what's really good is that just imagine if your blind spot weren't filled, filled in, Mm -hmm. how just distracting that would be, uh, maybe, I mean, I guess maybe we'd get used to it over time, but if in our field of vision, we constantly had this little dot where there was just nothing, uh, that would be kind of disorienting and, 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 and crucially would keep us from accomplishing what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, And so the same thing here with confabulation is, uh, again, we like to have meaning. We like to believe.
1: It's all about order in the universe, right?
0: It's about order in the universe. That's right. Um, So some really great research on this. Nisbet and Wilson uh, back in 77 did some research where they laid out. I can't remember what the clothing article was, but let's say it's a shirt. I don't remember precisely. But there were four shirts uh, of varying price um, of varying prices. and uh, the it was gained. I mean, because they were all these actually the the four shirts were all really of equal quality, same materials. There were some differences in uh, color and maybe some differences in texture. but largely, all the shirts cost the same to make. Uh, but, there were prices attached to them. And so then when they asked the respondents you know, to kind of give the reason why the more expensive shirts might've been more expensive, of course the respondents came up with reasons why that was so.
1: Oh, the, the fibers were higher quality. It was This, this one is Egyptian cotton <laughs> and this one is the teen. It's like when I go shopping for sheets. Yeah, exactly. What the heck? Come
0: on! Yeah, and uh, and I'll at least talk. I think I, you know, I I don't know how how many women really knew the term Egyptian cotton twenty five years ago. Uh, maybe you know, I'm, I'm guessing more than men, but certainly it was nothing on my radar uh, until I don't know, sometime in the last fifteen years or so, I guess. But uh, so another great another great example of this is uh, if you've seen the. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel show.
1: Oh, the, uh, are you talking about Lie Witness News? L-
0: lie Witness News. So, Dina, tell us about that. What's going on in Lie Witness News?
1: So, lie a lot. A lot is actually going on in Lie Witness News. <laughs> I think I would argue that Lie Witness News is also a great um, a great example of conformity bias. So, when lie well,
0: witness. Well, and and I think probably confirmation bias as well, right?
1: A lot. lot. There's so many. Yeah. It's it's the it's really nice. Good. Mm-hmm. So well, in Live Witness News, Jimmy Kimmel's Street Team, uh, they go out onto, I guess, Hollywood Boulevard or wherever they are in LA, and they find some people on the street, and they ask them, they ask them to explain something that's fake. Yeah. Right. So yeah. they say, "Hey, um, you know, we just saw on the news that there is this new." Um, earthquake predictor, whatever I don't even know. They come up with some crazy stuff, and then they ask people to explain it. and these people don't want to look like idiots and they think it's real. Um, so they make a ton of stuff up about <laughs> whatever this fake fake uh, topic is. yeah, and then, of course, Jimmy Kimmel airs it, and they're um shamed and embarrassed in front of the entire country
0: and What's And and it is hilarious. And then the next step that everyone needs to understand is that uh, if under pressure, you might not do, you know, all that well either. Yeah. Confabulation in the sense of trying to create a story where you really don't know what what the actual (laughs) story is. Yeah. So uh, what they got out of their work, Nisbet and Wilson was, When asked to report how a given uh, stimulus affected their response, test subjects don't consult memory, but really by applying causal theories about how such a stimulus typically drives that type of response. And so they go to, it's almost more about like, what have they seen that's similar to this? What has, you know, what has been their experience when they've seen something similar playing out? Oh, it looked like that was happening there. Therefore, that's probably what's happening here uh mm-hmm. and it's it gets back to the work that shows that there really is a difference between our experiencing and our remembering self and yeah you know, we just don't we really don't know what the what the, what the real issue is so yeah, go ahead
1: so as per usual, I have no source for what i'm about to say
0: yeah absolutely uh, let's <laughs> go with it so so let's let's hear, let's hear what story you pull together here
1: um so i remember reading that we actually when we remember something are not remembering the original occurrence but we're remembering the last time we remembered it
0: yeah yeah i think that that's that's right and then it's the same it's the same idea that there will be pieces as much as we are able to pull forward from the actual event itself we'll use them but again we've forgotten a lot of it or we didn't really ever understand it that well in first place whatever it is and so we'll we'll pull in whatever else from the environment again it's kind of like this it seems plausible it, and makes, it makes sense here it does make sense and and what's what's important for everyone to understand is this is not prevarication this is not people trying to get away with stuff we will go on good faith that this is people really trying to be as honest as they possibly can be and it's just they just can't be as honest as we would like them to be or or we're not as honest as we would like to be because we just we don't know the full story why
1: don't you tell the people the truth for a change and a lot of that too is because we don't have access to the non-conscious processes that our brain engages in there
0: we go even
1: if we, even if we wanted to lay it all out there and say, here's the process that my brain went through to arrive at this conclusion or this decision, we just, we don't have access to it. We, yeah. we, can't, we can't. So that, and because we have this thirst and this desire for understanding and meaning that not knowing how we got from A to Z is very disconcerting. That level of ambiguity is very uncomfortable for us as humans. And so we apply this framework to something that we couldn't possibly have any understanding of.
0: And so this is a great example about, and, and so I honestly don't know the answer to this but Western cultures really, really, really love rationality and and linearity. And so I guess an interesting question, and now I need to go see if we can, if if we have any data on this is, is confabulation more of an issue in cultures like ours where having that tight story is really super important. Um, What's, I think a couple times we've uh, we've invoked Jonathan Haidt's metaphor of the of the rational rider on the emotional elephant, right. and and you have to ask yourself in that um, in that power dynamic, like who's really in charge? <laughs> and so the answer is clearly the elephant, and the best the rider can do is to try to influence the elephant and to kind of nurture the elephant and make it easy for the elephant to do smarter things and and more helpful things and everything but if there's a uh if there's any kind of uh clash between the rider and the elephant the rider never wins
1: and- this dynamic is very apparent to me um or very clear to me as the parent of a seven-year-old child <laughs> yes I and I know I know that this is not a parenting podcast so um let's just just we're going to suspend judgment of my my how cool. my parenting skills. Helpful cool
0: um, example though.
1: Yeah. So yeah. I must ask Harry again who's 7 several times a day either what were you thinking or why did you do that and he never knows. He ne- he's like I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And the more I persist with trying to get to the bottom of it, the more convoluted it gets. So it's, you just, it feels good to ask the question. So I ask the question, I no longer actually expect any useful information.
0: (laughs) So Dina, uh, I'm, I'm putting a star by this. I have a note on here. We're going to revisit that very point at the end of this episode, because we have a way out. I don't even know if you and I have talked about this, but, um, something uh, something i picked up at a conference with our friends up at uh, ycci that is directly applicable to that and then translating it to the engagement with respondents for consumer research or anytime you're working with consumers or your end customer so
1: i have about two more weeks left of a holiday break from school so i need all the help i can get
0: <laughs> there you are, there you are. Um, so many people have heard about Renee Brown, you know, uh, this notion of, uh, being vulnerable and daring and, you know, shame. And, and she's really good. Uh, I mean, she's, she's one of the people who really, I think, even, uh, trying to get more men to understand the value of emotional intelligence. And, and she says, you know, um, when something difficult happens, our emotions get the first crack at responding to it. Emotions are at the wheel. It's back to the rider and the elephant, right? This is the elephant. When something bad happens, cognition and behavior are bound and gagged in the trunk. <laughs> Emotion is driving. So yeah. it's a, that's a very vivid uh, metaphor. So, but, you know, kind of dwell with that, listeners, and 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 see if you can, uh, you know, not only perceive that and 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 obviously it's easier to see that in other people than in ourselves because of naive realism but yeah that's so that's that's really what's going on here so how do we set up the question that we'll get to a little bit later but to be thinking about is how to set up conditions so that in having a discussion about this and trying to get to motivations and trying to understand what's really going on we're just taking you know some noise out of the out of that conversation
1: I have some ideas so you tell me when we're ready to talk
0: well I think, we can, I think we can go there there's, uh, let's see what else did I um, yeah what the heck let's go for it I think there's a lot here that we can talk about ways to help get us over the worst effects of confabulation so so what do you think Dina
1: so um, one way and I I actually just wrote out um, some ideas on this pretty extensively for um, for one of our for one of our clients because um, of course everyone's very interested in this and how to circumvent it. It's important to people um, because as we're developing products and services and positioning for all those products and services. We really want to make sure that it's rooted in things that are real and not made up, you know, rationale for behavior.
0: Well, yeah, just sound good. They persuade because other people see the same pattern. Oh, yeah, that must be what was going on here.
1: That makes it makes sense. So therefore, it must be right. Yeah.
0: Well, it makes sense. And we really need an answer here. So let's go with it.
1: (laughs) Yep. So I think that the first thing is um, whenever possible, we need to set the conditions to be able to um, observe behavior um, and not ask about it after the fact.
0: Yeah, nice.
1: um, I think that there's a lot that we can learn from observing how things actually go down um, versus asking. So if I'm asking you, tell me about... Uh, your ritual, your bedtime ritual for putting your child to bed. So you're going to tell me about it. You're going to leave things out. Um, You're going to confabulate a lot, particularly if I ask you follow-up questions about why you did this or that. If I can be an observer to this bedtime ritual actually happening, then I have the ability to really see versus hear after the fact what actually happened during that, that whole time.
0: So there's, and, yeah, so there's Dina. So with that, there's like a, being aware of that it's how to create to your point, how to create conditions that are, are more likely to avoid the noise of confabulation. And you just, you, you can't you just get out of that, that particular loop. And so thinking of a continuum of confabulation, you know, we can imagine situations that would maximize confabulation, which would be like great emotional pressure, great emotional pressure to be honest, but still report a really favorable outcome, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. that is. And so then, yeah, I guess the closer you can get to it happening live versus having to ask them to to remember it,
1: Right. Yeah. So yeah. So another way is journaling. With journaling, you can really and and a lot. I think a lot of confabulation lives in when we're talking about the innovation spectrum. I think a lot of it lives in the opportunity discovery phase. Yeah. So if you can have a consumer write down or take photos or in some way chronicle what they're experiencing again, while they're in the moment and not after the fact, that's all really helpful to start to dig in and understand uh, what's going on versus having them tell you about it later. Cause I yeah. think telling you about it later and the accuracy of recall is really what sort of sets us up for, a hardcore confabulation experience.
0: So again, it's back to this, uh, the understanding about how different the experiencing self is from the remembering self. And one of the key things in that is that we don't remember in video, we remember in snapshot. And the snapshots that we remember will be one or more peaks that occurred during the experience, be they positive or negative, or, you know, you could have a you know, a couple positive peaks and maybe a couple negative peaks, whatever. But you're going to remember those parts of it disproportionately and, and honestly tend to ignore much else that went on, plus one other important part, which is what was the concluding part of the experience. And so just even there, understanding that we can see the opportunity for confabulation to come in because we're going to remember those peaks as if they were, you know, pretty much indicative of the whole experience. And the research is just clear that's just that's honestly not the case. So this idea of just observing, journaling, trying to capture it in real time as much as possible, where there, where there is all the context and the yeah. actual the actual context, uh, and that's important. And we and we I guess we forget or it's just we can't always carry the full context with us when we're, you know, when we're on the road when we go away from wherever that happened, and right. so and and we tend to discount then the effect of the context what was going on who were we with uh what what had happened right before that you know all these things
1: and also so mu- i mean so many of the behaviors and situations that people who are interested in innovating new products or new services, so much of what they're interested in is really rooted in system one behavior. So these are products or services that are gonna be really relevant to our everyday lives, which means that they're going to be relevant in situations that we experience every day or even multiple times a day. And when that's the case, our, our, thought processes and our behaviors through those experiences that we have multiple times a day are so automated that again, we can't even separate the non-conscious things that we're doing and the decisions that we're making from the conscious because they're so interwoven. Like the, the driving home from work example, if you're driving a route and I'm sure you talked about this when you talked about availability bias, but when you're driving home from work and this is the drive you do every day, it's, you're on autopilot. You can get from your, your office to your home or from wherever you work to your home without even thinking about it. So
0: Absolutely. A big
1: yeah. part of why that in the moment stuff is so important because there are so many things that we're doing and feeling that we're just really not even conscious of because we do it and we feel it so much.
0: So this is, uh, As you're talking, it really became obvious to me this, this kind of this contradiction that, you know, marketers understand the importance of emotional benefits, right? Emotional benefits are just more, they tend to have, you know, uh, longer legs. They tend to be more resistant to competitive pressures. If you're focusing too much just on functional benefits, the moment a competitor comes up with something that's that good or better, then what do you have? And so marketers, marketers and innovators get the need for emotional benefit, yet most of our approach surrounding creating those emotional benefits that, that, that we're hoping that we're going to be able to create and understanding then what the experience is with the consumer, most of the approach is still far too rational. And so we're not, we, need to match the, we need to match the approach to what we're trying to generate.
1: Yeah. And this is one of the things I actually think that, um, ITG inspire does really well. So but
0: Dina, what is ITG inspire? We, you know, we had Greg on, I don't even think we talked about it. That was dumb.
1: Um, I, I don't know how to explain it. You'll have, like, like Greg will have to get, it's a thing. It's a, it's well, let,
0: a let me give a, let me just give a quick, you I, do I, it. I can do this. Yeah. So inspire came about, the the impetus for it was this, where we're talking about for opportunity discovery. And it's just like how to get better input to help clients determine what those big opportunity areas are. And so look, you have survey data, you can do collaging, you can do social media listening and see what's going on there and everything. But doggone it, what if you actually had some context and connection between all three of those types of data. And so Inspire, this is, uh, we should have said, uh, this is not a paid advertisement, uh, but we'll get through it quickly, uh, just to so understand what we're trying to do here. And it really is about establishing better context for understanding what's going on. So Inspire is a consumer survey, both multiple choice and open-ended questions. For each question, we ask the consumers to uh, give us, you know, three or four photos, to provide further context, both emotional context and just overall situational context and everything for their answer. We want to be able to see it helps it come to life. And then for each photo, could we have at least two or three hashtags that further flesh out what was going on?
1: And that's the part that I think really helps because what I've noticed about hashtags as a modern societal phenomenon hashtags are inherently emotional yeah Uh, and so because of the hashtag portion of this whole itg inspire party um i think it really does enable us to get more to the underlying emotional motivations versus the rational behaviors and that's why i think it's related to confabulation
0: you've seen the uh you know, kind of these setups before, like what is going on the surface in a conversation, and then what actually is being said.
1: <laughs> it's like that thing that MTV used to do with the pop-up videos, where they yeah, have yeah exactly. weird. Yeah, pop- we're the I we're probably the, we're old. That that they don't do that anymore. Well, I'm
0: really old, and so I I, re- I was fascinated by what you young kids were doing with that when I was already an old man. But the process that that your brain has to engage in order to form words to express what is going on is is pretty extensive and the left brain is the is a seat of the language center and so it has to you know if you don't get to the left brain it it doesn't get out but there's still this translation even within us between the emotions that we're feeling and everything and then you know getting hold of the left brain saying okay well this is going on what would you do with that you know it's 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 you know it's UN interpreter, and then we're somewhat dependent on how adept the interpreter is.
1: I think that the final piece, maybe not the final, but the final piece that I thought about is, and this is something that you sort of alluded to earlier, but the line of questioning, the way in which you ask the questions um, really, really makes a huge difference and how and how much space there is for the person answering the questions to engage in confabulation Absolutely. so i have an example from the field if you're let's interested. do it okay so as you um, probably know i in addition to facilitating a lot of innovation sessions i i also um, happen to be a person on our team who there's a fair number of focus, group, a lot of focus group moderating.
0: So in focus group moderating.
1: The line of questioning is really important to help the consumers who are answering your questions avoid a super confabulatory situation.
0: Well, because they're going to, they're going to try to be helpful to give you the answer to the question you're asking. Yes. Yeah.
1: So um, in a recent session, I was working with a client and they were doing a competitive landscape exploration. So they were really trying to understand for their product, they had uh, two competitors that they thought were really significant and they wanted to sort of understand how are consumers thinking about the category that their product is in. And what how are they thinking about the different big brands that are in that category. How are they similar. How are they different. What space do they each own. So this is what they were trying to understand existing category perceptions. So one of the exercises that I had put in the discussion guide to do in the session was Um, go up. I had them work in teams, the the consumers, and go up to, you know, big easel paper on the wall and draw out um, the neighborhood. So if each of these brands is a different family in the neighborhood, tell me all about that family. Um, And the client team really wanted me to ask this other question, uh, which was, what celebrity do you think each brand is and why? And so I initially said to them, hey, you guys, you know, I really think we're going to get the information that we're looking for from the who are the people in your neighborhood exercise.
0: Who are the people in your neighborhood?
1: Right. So I said, let's table, let's table this celebrity thing for the time being, and they said, they agreed. They said, okay, we'll we'll trust you, you're, you're, the, you're the expert. So we did, we got really great stuff out of the who are the people in your neighborhood. Um, it was very illustrative, it was very consistent from group to group. And then in the third group, the client said, can you please just ask the celebrity question? We just wanna see. So I asked the celebrity question. I said, you know, who, who, what celebrity do you think, you know, this brand is? And one guy said, Bruno Mars. And someone else said, Martha Stewart. And someone else said, Wilfred Grimley. Like there was nothing. It was all over the map and people had no, so why, why is it Bruno Mars? Well, I don't know, because I really like Bruno Mars and I really like this product. Like it was, <laughs> exactly they exactly. had no they, they were just making stuff up and it was some of the most, it was primo confabulation
0: that happened. <laughs> well, so what, right there, what I'm seeing, Dina, is the difference between those two approaches. Who's the celebrity is, um, so, you know, the, this this dualism, again, it gets back to our culture. The Western culture really prefers atomism over holism, Right. And uh, we, want, we just want to know about this one thing, ignoring how vital the context is to understand really with, with any depth, with any um, then actionability on the other end of it, you know, the, the, the whole context around it and the neighborhood uh, question. I mean, I'm not just trying to uh, give you a pat on the back but having the brands in relation to each other is much more effective and uh and still what's good about this overall in either case projective techniques as a category can be helpful to to get past confabulation but within them still set it up so that you're not um then unnecessarily noising it up again with oh i really like him and i really like this yeah (laughs)
1: <laughs> there's also there's also this nuance of the what's the answer and why. So in the neighborhood example we're saying say who the family is and then tell us some qualities of that family that make them a good representation of this brand versus who is the who which celebrity is it and why. It's like that that question why is the gateway to confabulation
0: yes and i'm going to use this thank you and so now
1: anytime you can find a way to phrase the question so that it's coming in from a different direction other than why you're you're setting yourself up for success
0: well you have presaged dina so maybe we have had this conversation and then if we haven't, I, I'm thinking uh, why we wouldn't have got that out to everyone. So at the Yale Center for Customer Insight Conference, I don't even remember how long ago, uh, Ed Harrington and I went, and they spent some time talking about this very issue. And the reason why Y isn't effective is because of confabulation,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the Uh, for the most part, we just don't know the answer. And so when you actually swarm that, the thing that you're trying to get to, you actually do a better job, a higher fidelity job in the signal of getting to why, if you swarm that uh, situation with the other journalist questions. So who were you with? What was going on? How were you feeling? you know, what time of day was it, what had happened right before, you know, and the more you can establish these kind of contextual uh, cues and you get much more of a 3D picture of what was going on. Instead of so again, this atomistic just kind of pinpoint thing you're actually going to get, you're actually going to be able to infer a much more um, real why than by asking why directly. And so the kind of the line is don't ask consumers or any end users to be social scientists on themselves. They can't, right. and, and we can't, we can't on ourselves either.
2: Sure.
1: And that's, that's our, that's the job. Uh, uh, that's the researcher's job is to take all of the information and learn from it. Um, and then make inferences based on the full picture, the consumer is not in a position to be able to tell you the answer.
0: No, yeah, and, and for the simple fact that they're human, and so none of us is, is in the situation to be able to do right. that. This sort of thing has cropped up before, and it has always been due to human error. So back to uh, ITG Parenting Corner, Dina. Oh, great. So, so then the next time you want to know why Harry did something, Yes. Where where, where do you go?
1: What were you doing when that
0: happened?
1: How were you feeling right before you decided to make that hideous choice?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're you're more likely to get there because Harry doesn't know why. Yes, of
1: course. And I will also say that... Moderating tons and tons of focus groups does make you a uh, ver- does does put you in a great position to be able to ask your family members. I, you can moderate the the crap out of your family members. You yeah. can ask them all kinds of things and get to the bottom of what they were doing and how school was and how work was and all that other good stuff.
0: Perfect. All right, so you, uh, you brought up earlier that confabulation really shows up in opportunity identification, and then you talked then about uh, moderating focus groups. So we've kind of sandwiched ideation, um, and and it's clear how confabulation is a problem in both opportunity identification and then the testing on the back end of concept development. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have one thing I'd like to bring up, just one idea for uh, to get – it to really to make confabulation a non-issue and ideation. And this is just one approach. And so this is, you know, we talk about how, you know, bringing stimulus into ideation is so helpful to get us past the you know, most obvious stuff right in front of our feet. And that, uh, unrelated stimuli tend to drive uniqueness when you then process them, play with them, you know, see where that you can go. And more related stimuli then can be really helpful for, uh, additional relevance. So an, an excursion that we've, we've done um, several times, it's really kind of fun. It takes a little bit of setup because people go, what the heck is this? Uh, it's probably not dissimilar from Babel, which you'll hear about in the episode with Christine, but it's called hyper-contextual storytelling. And so this is now tell a story about what we're working on here. So we're, we're in the personal care category. We're trying to come up with new opportunities for ear health. I'm making it up. Uh, so by telling a story that has absolutely nothing to do with the obvious cues and context around the ear or hearing or any of the most obvious stuff, but now let's say our uh, brand is, I, I'm doing this on the spot. This is not a good idea. Uh, our, our brand is uh, Audios, and it's actually a uh, serial that helps with uh, ear health. Okay, really, we're modeling this, folks. By not going to anything that has to do with serial or ear or hearing, and now Audios is actually a, um, you know, a mafia don. And now Audios, uh, you know, early in Audios' life, he was intent. He really wanted to be uh, a thoracic surgeon and was totally headed down that path. But just this, you know, the tractor pull of tradition and family and, you know, everything that goes with that just slowly chipped away at audios and, uh, you know, it was incremental. It wasn't obvious that he was, you know, going to end up on this horrible path that he was intent on avoiding with his life. And he really did have this intent of being a thoracic surgeon to help heal the world and maybe establish some, you know, order to the force some balance to the force. But when you then tell that story and play it out, the stimulus you get, then that you can bring back now to breakfast cereals for better, you know, audio, uh, uh, oral health is going to be so much richer. And you're not just asking the obvious stuff about, you know, why do you need the cereal?
1: Can I ask a question? Please tell me. How you see confabulation come up in ideation most frequently?
0: Uh, so, so the the opposite of this when we don't use ideation sufficiently to mm-hmm. drive to new, and we're over preoccupied with relevant, and we want to do so. If we'll do a, uh, you know, break out into a pair or a trio, and the excursion is more about. Okay, play out a typical day for you when you come into contact with this product or this product category or everything i mean again, helpful i mean and you need to you need to understand that at some point, but then if that's where your starting point is uh you can see how far you're going to go and you and you can and you can see the potential for confabulation to come in because now when i'm using this product i'm i'm you know my most virtuous i'm my I'm, I'm my most um you know, responsible, you know, and all those things that that can come up too easily.
1: So that's great. That's really helpful. So it, what I'm hearing you say is that by going even further in the direction of unrelated or even absurd, yeah. it, so it feels like you might be going more toward the confabulatory. You're actually in that sort of confabulation time space continuum moving in the direction <laughs> that you need to in order to help mitigate confabulation in an, in, when you're coming up with ideas.
0: So this is overly cute, but you're actually using uh, a fabulatory approach to combat confabulation.
1: Yeah, so, really, that, that really makes a lot of sense, actually.
0: <laughs> it does make a lot of sense because you just confabulated that response. Yep. <laughs> and so did I very good well hey do you know what else uh, what else should the folks know I, I guess just you know one thing I would just have is we all need to have a little bit of um humility about this and recognize that this is that we're all prone to this yeah so we do this ourselves a day doesn't go by Without each one of us confabulating in some way, and again, we're not lying. We're not. You know, this is not spin. This is not PR. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna assume good faith. But when you recognize that you're as subject to it as any, you know, end user that you end up working with, then um, we're gonna be better off.
1: Yes. It's really, um, awareness is the key. So with all of these cognitive biases, being aware that this is happening is the first step in the right direction.
0: That's absolutely right. And then, uh, are there 11 steps after that?
1: There are at least 28 steps.
0: <laughs> so this is not, <laughs> not a 12 step process. This is a two, oh, 29, right. 29 step process. The 29 no, 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 it's very, it's simple. It's simple. It's, it's, uh, it's simple, but not necessarily easy, but it's fun. And, and the point we're trying to make hopefully is that it's uh, at the end, at the end of all of it, it's effective. So that's what it's all about. Dina, thank you so very much. We've been at this, I think for about, uh, 45 plus minutes or so. Uh, I appreciate you being with us today and, uh, you yeah, onward and upward, let's keep doing better innovation.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I had a blast. Hi,
2: hey everybody. It's Liza. I'm here to do more self-inflicted curse of knowledge notes um, on this most recent podcast from Adam and Dina on confabulation. CPSI, also referred to as SIPSI, is the Creative Problem Solving Institute that is so well explained by Dina. I can't add anything else except yes, it is the best possible immersion into creative problem solving. I've done it, you should too. Uh, Adam mentions the corpus callosum. It is the part of the brain that allows communication between the right and left hemispheres. So there you go. Uh, Brene Brown is a research professor at the University of Houston, where she focuses on human connection and our ability to empathize. Her TED talk on this subject called The Power of Vulnerability has had over 33 million views. Dina mentioned the opportunity discovery phase of the innovation spectrum. If you think about product development as a linear construct with a beginning, a middle, and an end up at your grocery store kind of a shelf thing, then opportunity discovery, or as Adam called it later in the podcast, opportunity identification, Um, Is at the very, very beginning of that process where you're trying to figure out, identify, discover where your next new great idea might come from. Uh, Dina mentioned pop-up videos. Uh, It was a show on VH1, not MTV, uh, but I'll let it slide because music video channels are a rare thing these days. Um, Pop-up videos were fun. They had little bits of info and trivia that popped up during music videos that were playing. It premiered in 1996, so a really long time ago. Um, And just a last one, when Dina mentioned Session, when she's talking about working with uh, her clients, client being Fortune 500 companies, uh, Session refers to the Ideas to Go innovation projects that we do for these clients. Uh, That's all I have for today. I'm going to go drink some hot tea. hope you all have a good day.
0: Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. We are Ideas To Go. We love innovation and serving our clients. For more information about us, check us out at www.ideastogo.com as well as OutsmartYourInstincts.com. Stay tuned for further explorations and people being liberated to do innovation right on the next episode of the Outsmart Your Instincts podcast.